Hi, my name is Holly, and I'd like to welcome you to the second location. The only second location that you should ever go to. So while it might not sound like it, I've been working on this podcast for a long time. But please forgive me, I really don't know what I'm doing when it comes to technology. See, I stopped learning about computers in 1998. But it's really much more important that I do know what I'm talking about when it comes to crime. So just listen to what I'm saying and not how I sound. For our first episode, I am talking about the unsolved murder of the boy in the box, perhaps more kindly known as America's unknown child. The naked, lifeless body of a young boy was found in an overgrown thicket along Susquehanna Road in Philadelphia on February 25, 1957. It was a Tuesday. At this point, I would usually like to go into the victim's background and talk about all those little details about people that make us feel like we knew the victim, but here... We know nothing about the victim, except that he died young, he spent most of his life hungry, until he was beaten to death. I don't think it's too dramatic to say that this child never felt kindness or warmth from another person during his life, but he would be loved in death by the investigators who worked so hard to find his identity. Although the 25th of February was the first time that anyone had notified the police about the corpse, it wasn't the first time anyone had seen the dead body. On the Saturday or Sunday before, a teenage Polish-American boy had curiously looked into the box and saw what he initially thought was a doll was actually a child. Okay, people, so it's important to note here, it's never a mannequin and it's never a doll. It's always a dead body. But anyway, the boy had been in the area to check his animal traps But after he saw the body of the little boy inside the cardboard box, he panicked and he left the scene and went home, deciding not to go to church to see if he wanted to have a game of basketball. So you might think he goes home and immediately calls the police, right? Of course not. But I can understand why. The young man had been raised by parents that had grown up in Poland during the height of World War II. They had seen uniformed men take away people in the middle of the night as the Nazis steamrolled through Poland. It can be easily understood why these newcomers to America would have a fear or distrust of the police. When the teenager was eventually questioned by the police, he could not accurately recall if it was Saturday or Sunday that he had found the boy. He just knew that it was on a weekend that he had made the grisly discovery. I think of Kitty Genovese. She was murdered in New York City in 1964. First, she was attacked and stabbed outside of her apartment building, and then her attacker returned and stabbed her as she was inside the vestibule of the apartment building. At the time of her murder, the New York Times reported that 38 witnesses were aware of the attack. And this attack was brutal. Her attacker stabbed her twice in the back as she tried to outrun him and get into her apartment building. And then he fled the scene only to return 10 minutes later. He searched for her, and he found her lying in a hallway in the back of the building. He proceeded to stab her repeatedly, then rape her, and steal all of her cash before fleeing. The total time of all attacks was around 30 minutes. Years later, the New York Times would admit that their article had exaggerated the number of witnesses. It was such a staple of psychology books that I remember learning about her murder in high school and the bystander effect that people are less likely to offer someone in distress help or call the police if there are other people around, and I can understand it. Someone thinks, why call the police? Someone else will. Or why would I run down there and help her? No one else is. While the number of witnesses to her murder is disputed, there were witnesses as one guy yelled, let that girl alone, when she was first attacked. In a doorman that was across the way in another building, he actually saw a kitty get stabbed in the back the first time with a, quote, shiny knife. That guy didn't call for help. He didn't rush to her. He went to bed. So to me, it's not just a group thing. Why the hell didn't that guy do anything other than go to sleep? He actually saw her being stabbed. There really is no excuse. But 
What I found that was interesting was that many of the residents of Kitty's apartment building were Jewish survivors of the Holocaust, and they understandably had an intense fear of the police, which was a factor in their fewer number of phone calls. But I can also see this cutting both ways. Wouldn't survivors of the Holocaust be more willing to help because of the atrocities committed against them and the failure of others to intervene on their behalf? So, I don't know. I could, I could see it go both ways. I could also see a very intense fear of authority and the police. I watched a documentary about the death of Kitty called The Witness, and that information about the Holocaust being a factor in the failure of witnesses to contact authorities was explained. That documentary is brilliant, by the way. It really showcases sibling love and how the murder of a sibling can have a lifelong impact on the rest of the family. But I think the idea that the Holocaust survivors might be hesitant to contact the police just shows that not everyone's take on the police is what you might expect it to be. Okay, back to Philadelphia, 1957. On Monday, February 24th, another young man became the second known person to discover the boy's dead body. According to this man's story, while driving down the road, he saw a rabbit run into the vacant plot, and he was worried because he had seen some traps in that area a few weeks before, and he had stuck a stick in the traps to set them off. So he got out of his car, and he was pleased to see that the traps had not been reset. But as he wandered about, he noticed a large cardboard box. Once he peered inside, he saw what he hoped was a doll, but what he thought might be a dead child. Honestly, I cannot believe that two people actually looked in this abandoned box. I would never even think about doing that. I just think there's never going to be anything good in that box. I remember an old friend of mine saw that someone was throwing away some nice baby gear. So she just stopped by along the side of the curb to grab it. And there was a box of a baby bouncer that she just grabbed and tossed and put it in the trunk of her car. When she opened it at home, the box that she thought had a baby bouncer in it was full of dog poop. She was seriously like, why the hell did I think there was going to be a baby bouncer in that box? She had crossed the line in her mind between dumpster diving and shopping. Standing alongside that road, she just thought she was in a target. So at best, I assumed an abandoned box is just full of dog shit. And, you know, at worst, ugh. Okay, back to the story. The second guy to see the body does decide to call it in but not immediately. He waits a day, and after hearing a radio broadcast about a four-year-old girl missing from southern New Jersey, he feels a little unnerved, and he consults his brother, who was a priest, and he was basically like, bro, you know what you gotta do. So he had some encouragement to do the right thing, but he was hesitant because he had been questioned by the police about loitering around the Susquehanna Road to look at the young ladies that lived at the Good Shepherd School for Wayward Girls. Kind of calls into that question, that whole, I uh, just check it on a, a rabbit story. <laughs> really, I mean, I value honesty as much as the next person, but I don't expect the guy to be like, yo, hey, I was in the area doing some perving and I found a dead body, even if that was the case. So I can see why this guy doesn't want to contact the police at first, but you just got to. Also, quit being a perv sneaking up trying to look at wayward girls through windows, okay? They don't need that. They're already wayward. Maybe it was a rabbit that caused him to stop. It doesn't really matter. But his fear of going to the police prevented him from contacting the authorities immediately. He does call on Tuesday morning, the day after he saw the boy, saying that he was unsure maybe it was just a doll. And this is why the police respond on the 25th. It's the response to this guy's phone call about finding the body. And um, the little girl that he had heard about on the radio was actually Mary Jane Barker. She went missing while playing with her little playmate's new puppy. Six days later, her body was found in a first floor bedroom closet in an unoccupied house next door to her playmate's house. It is theorized that the little girl couldn't open the door from the inside because while the outside of the closet door had a knob, the inside had one of those little tab type devices that you have to pinch and, and pull. So... 
it would be very difficult for a child to use. She had died of starvation and exposure, and the puppy survived, but not for long because he was ultimately euthanized because some had theorized that the puppy must have been fed during the time that they were both missing for the puppy to be so energetic while Mary Jane had died under the same conditions. The autopsy of the dog showed that he had not eaten during the time that they were both missing. And veterinarians explained that, yes, a puppy could survive under those conditions. Uh, anybody think maybe they should have contacted the veterinarians before they euthanized the dog? It would have been a phone call that was worth making, I think. Um, sadly, the house had been searched a couple of times, but no one thought to look in that particular closet. Many people think that she was too afraid of getting in trouble, that she, so she did not call out for help when the house was searched. But to me, that just sounds crazy. Little Mary Jane, she knew she was in trouble. She knew she couldn't open that door. She was trapped, and she'd been trapped there for hours. She would realize that she needed someone to open the door for her. She needed help. I would guess that she was just sleeping when the house was searched. But anyway, immediately... Upon looking into the box, the first offer to respond, Elmer Palmer, knew that it wasn't a doll in that box, and he radioed it in and waited for backup. The second cop to arrive was Sam Weinstein. He greets Palmer and turns to walk back to his patrol car and encounters a teen boy on a bicycle on his way back to the patrol car. And he sends the boy back the way he came from and asks him if the kid had seen anybody hanging around in the area lately. The kid hadn't. After the ambulance arrives, the boy was pulled from the box revealing that his little body was covered in bruises. His legs were just absolutely bruised all over, and his face had bruises everywhere, but especially around his forehead, almost around, like, where a hat would sit, like a hat band of bruises almost. It was just immediately clear that this was a brutal murder of a small boy. Perhaps the saddest fact was that the boy's mouth was positioned as if he'd been crying out when he died. I have memories of an old Wikipedia entry that seemed to imply that the boy had been well cared for, studying the fact that he had been bathed, his fingernails clipped, and his hair cut. I just don't get the connection there. He was beaten to death, and he was underweight, malnourished. He was not well cared for. For someone to beat a four-year-old to death, I don't think they were ever a great caregiver. I think that cops or even just regular people couldn't believe that people would mistreat children in this way, which is just insane. People have been treating kids like crap since the beginning of time, but I think child abuse wasn't as publicly recognized as it is today. And that's one of the few things that my dad recognizes as a positive progress or a change for the better. In the late 1950s, early 1960s, he went to school with a little boy who was beaten at home, and the little boy's legs were always covered in bruises. The kids called him bumblebee legs. And the school's solution was that this little kid didn't have to take gym class because the school felt the kid got knocked around enough at home, no need to aggravate his injuries. Also, no need to stop the abuse. People, sometimes the old times weren't always the best of times. But for a cop to think that people aren't capable of violence towards children, that just sounds nuts. But author David Stout, in the excellent book, The Boy in the Box, explains that this may have been an attempt to paint the death as an accident and make the killer think that if they came forward, they would only be charged with tampering with a body type charges. If that's the case, it was genius. Even though it didn't work, it was still a good idea. I just got the feeling that one particular guy that was really dedicated to the case and just tried forever to solve the case and bring this boy's name back to him really seemed to think that it could have been an accident. But even if they didn't set out to beat him to death, they still did. Like, I don't think that really mitigates it that much. It's murder versus manslaughter. Either way, you killed someone. It wasn't a real, quote, accident. Someone didn't fall off a ladder type accident. More of I should have stopped beating that preschooler a little sooner than I did type accident of it. But when you go to Wikipedia, there are no claims that the little boy was well cared for anymore. Thanks to who the hell ever made that update, it was sorely needed. The boy was nude, but wrapped in a half-assed kind of way 
with a small blanket that had been cut into two pieces. He had been given a recent haircut, perhaps after death, and clumps of the hair still clung to his little body. They didn't even wipe the clipped hair off him. You know how itchy that shit can be. But they didn't care. The haircut was also super patchy and uneven. The hasty haircut may have been an attempt to alter the boy's appearance to help prevent him from being identified. It's over 60 years later, and we still know him as the boy in the box, not David or whatever, so it worked. Also at the scene, 17 feet from the box, was a man's cap with a tag from the hat shop still intact. So potentially a solid lead. Or shit. Who the hell can tell? There's tons of crap abandoned in this field. There are pictures online. It's like people just dumped crap out into the weeds. Once the boy was at the morgue, it was determined that the bruises were all from the same time. The state of healings were all the same, so all the bruises had been inflicted at the same time. There was one intense beating of this child. The cause of death was determined to be a wound on the back of the child's head. The body had several small scars, including an L-shaped scar under his chin, a scar in his groin area, chest, and left ankle. The three non-chin scars were believed to be surgical in nature. His age could not be accurately determined because he was so severely undernourished. He weighed about 30 pounds and he was 40 inches tall. Everywhere online states the boy was between four and six years old, including the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Officers at the scene thought he was between four and five years old. To me, he looks about four years old. And honestly, as the parent of some slender children, I don't think he looks that undernourished. It's just hard to tell not knowing his age. If he is four, then he is just slender. But if he is six, then he is definitely very much undersized. Obviously, I'm not an expert, but to me, in a way, he looks just super slim and closer to four than six. Also, he still has all of his baby teeth, which definitely applies under six. The detectives exhaustively contacted doctor's offices and hospitals to see if anyone remembered performing surgery on the child. And I don't think they ever figured out exactly what surgeries the child had undergone, but it would really have narrowed the search down there. Like, look at doctors that perform that type of particular surgery. I think that was one of the few avenues that wasn't actually pursued completely because the police really tirelessly searched down all clues. They did think that the ankle scar was a result of an incision for a transfusion or infusion during a surgery, but he had a scar on his groin. I mean, that's kind of unusual. Go contact some groin doctors. The boy was x-rayed and he had never had any broken bones. A dark brown coating was found in his esophagus, leading investigators to think that perhaps he had vomited sometime immediately before or during the beating, which prompted the bath before his death. When the medical examiner shined an ultraviolet light in the boy's left eye, the eye glowed lemon yellow. The medical examiner theorized that the boy had an eye condition and that an injectable diagnostic dye had been used on the child. His right hand and the soles of his feet bore the evidence of the aptly titled washerwoman effect, which is a pruning of the skin that happens when a dead body is left in the water. This effect will disappear slowly after the body is removed from water. The boy was circumcised, which to me implies a hospital birth which could really help in identifying the, the boy because hospitals took baby footprints at birth. So footprints of the boy were taken and cops did an exhaustive search comparing footprints from all the hospitals in the Philadelphia area. I initially thought that he could have been a home birth so no one necessarily knew about him, but I think the circumcision leans more towards the idea that he was born in a hospital. Part of me thought that this was a boy that no one but his family had ever really known about. He was not school age, and if the family is abusing the boy... They may hide him away to hide away the abuse. Also, the medical examiner determined that the boy had not been sexually assaulted. Because the boy had been left outside, the winter cold had affected decomposition, and the medical examiner found it difficult to pinpoint a time of death. His initial assessment was that the boy had died two to three days before the police found him, but we know from the two sightings of the box that he had definitely been dead more than two days when the police arrived. So here we are. The autopsy has been finished, and we have his leads the surgical style scars, the eye condition, the hat found nearby, the blanket he was wrapped in, 
and the box itself. Let's talk about the box, because I thought how good of a lead can a cardboard box actually be? But I was wrong. The box has the potential to be a really amazing lead, as the police are able to track the box with its shipping label. But one thing that's in the back of my mind as I read about the thicket was that this was a place that people commonly used as a dump site. This was a real thing. Nowadays, people are much better about not littering and actually just utilizing refuse pickup. But there was a time when people would just toss random crap in fields, which people did in this area. It pissed off the locals. This raises the question, was the box already there and the killers just went ahead and used it? If so, what could be a strong clue would actually be meaningless. Maybe they had just planned to dump the body wrapped in the blankets, but they see a box and just slide the boy in. Wrapped in blankets or in a box, he's going to be found. It's not like a great attempt was made to hide the body. I mean, it's not even the classic shallow grave. The blankets turns out to not really be a clue at all. There were far too many made for anyone ever to track down. But it was noted that a small piece had been cut from one of the pieces of blanket. So there was a chunk out of one of the blankets. People theorized that perhaps that section had contained the name of an orphanage, so it had to be removed to avoid detection. But the box... It had a limited supply. The box had originally held a white baby bassinet, and using the box's intact shipping label, they were able to determine that the bassinet was available for sale in J.C. Penney's in Upper Darby, a suburb west of Philadelphia. The store sold only a dozen of these bassinets between December 3, 1956 and February 16, 1957. That's 12, people. That's a reasonable number. But remember, this is in the days before credit or debit cards. Cash transactions are much harder to track. The FBI analyzed the box and could not find any fingerprints or further clues. Detectives would eventually track down 11 of the 12 boxes. Some had been ripped apart and thrown out in the trash, while others were stored in attics and basements. No one would outright admit that they had dumped a box anywhere. But that's amazing. 11 of the 12 boxes were found. I don't know how they did that, but I would think it was a plea for members of the public to come forward. So anyone that still had their box would understandably reply. But to those who had thrown their box away, that was pretty civic-minded of them to come forward. You're basically injecting yourself into a, a case involving a murdered child. I think there is another potential clue that may have been overlooked. It's that short six-week time frame in which the bassinet was actually sold at JCPenney. It ends just a week before the boy was found. That can mean that this family was in need of a baby bassinet in the seven weeks before his death. The boy may have had a baby sibling. That is an angle that I don't know if it was pursued very far or ever, because I've never heard it specifically addressed. But a check of births in local hospitals during that time frame could have yielded some potential leads. I mean, just think about that. If that was their box the bassinet box, whoever was holding him had the need to buy a bassinet. And you don't buy bassinets for older kids. It's not like a crib. This is for a newborn baby. So I really think that those seven weeks and births of babies around that time should have been just intensely explored. Now onto that corduroy cap found 17 feet from the box. The hat was located along a pathway. The label showed that the cap was from a small hat company. The small business ran on such tight margins that the sharp owner instantly recalled that she had been able to make 12 caps out of that corduroy fabric remnant. But even better, she remembered that cap in particular because the customer had asked her to customize the hat with a leather strap. She was able to describe the customer with some detail. He wore work clothes. He was in his late 20s. He had blonde hair and no noticeable accent. When shown a picture of the deceased boy, she said that the man could have been the boy's father. She noticed a resemblance. But remember, the cap was found 17 feet away from the box near a pathway. It may not have been connected to the boy at all, just blown off a cyclist's head. 
Okay, I think a cyclist would stop and picked up his custom-made hat. But maybe it fell from the pocket of a pedestrian. The cops went door-to-door -door in the neighborhood around the hat shop looking for the unknown man, but they were unable to locate him. Just to show you that the hat might not be connected at all, the cops also found a children's-sized yellow flannel shirt, a scarf, a man's handkerchief with the letter G embroidered in the corner, and a little further away, a small blanket was found, wrapped up with a man's gray sweater, and inside of all that was a dead cat. That thicket was full of discarded junk. The blanket was tested, and it was not from the same fabric as the blanket found with the boy's body. So what could be clues? Here, it could also just be trash. Theories began to emerge that perhaps the boy was special needs. Well, I'm sure as shit that's not how they referred to such a condition in 1957. But anyway, the theory is that he was killed by an overwhelmed parent. But I look at his legs and see the damage that seems far in excess of a stressed parent who snaps and lashes out at this boy. He was beaten all over his body and either fell backwards while being attacked and hitting his head or he was struck on the back of his head causing his death. While the bruises were all the same age, which implies that perhaps he wasn't consistently abused, his malnourishment shows that at a minimum he was consistently neglected. But if he was developmentally delayed, perhaps that is why no one comes forward, such as a neighbor or an acquaintance of the boy and his family, because he was kept hidden from sight by embarrassed parents. And the family doesn't come forward because, you know, they killed him. I remember a case where a 13-year-old boy was reported missing by his family, the case of Nicholas Barclay. Nicholas was a bit of a troublemaker, and he generally caused his family some stress. After he was missing for about three years, in Europe, a man emerges claiming to be the missing teenager. This man spoke with a French accent, and he had brown eyes instead of blue like young Nicholas. But he still convinced the family that he was their long-lost missing son or brother. Turns out that old Frenchie was actually a con man who was 23 years old, not the 16 years old that Nicholas would have been if he were still alive. The imposter's name was Frederick Burden, and his scam was uncovered when a private investigator that was working with a production company that was making a documentary about the family got a little suspicious. Frederick had tried to explain away the eye color change by claiming it had been done by a prostitution ring that held him in order to hide his true identity. Yeah, if Hitler couldn't find a way to change eye color, I don't think that a prostitution ring could do it. And he claimed that the accent was just from living in Europe for three years. Kind of like Madonna. She sure doesn't sound like she's from Detroit, does she? But the PI wasn't buying it. A court order was obtained for Frederick's DNA and fingerprints, and the results showed that he was not Nicholas. Anyone else think that maybe they should have looked into that DNA and fingerprints before he was returned to his air quotes family? Now you might be thinking, how the hell did this guy trick the family? He was seven years older than the missing boy, had a different eye color, and a French accent. That should be setting off some alarm bells. Sure, it would be if this family still thought Nicholas was out there and unaccounted for, but more likely they knew where he was and were covering for a family member or a friend that may have been involved in his death. And now this family member has supposedly passed away. It's just a theory, and everything here is just alleged, as no one has ever been charged in Nicholas's death. It's just that all this could be entirely false, but it would explain why Nicholas's family member coached Frederick and gave him all the answers to the questions about his long-lost family so he could pass the family knowledge test. After he was found out to be a fraud, Frederick explained that he was coached by a family member about family details. No one wants to say, hey, we know this isn't Nicholas because so-and-so killed him. They decided to play along and pretend that this Frenchman was Nicholas. The information about the family member coaching Frederick comes from Frederick himself, and it's also his theory as to why he was easily accepted by the family. They were trying to hide something. Just maybe this wasn't a family that was so bereaved that they were willing to accept a pretty blatant imposter. They just went along for the ride while trying to keep a secret buried. Okay, 
Back to Philadelphia. The police are putting the photo of the unnamed boy in all the papers. An insert is included in residents' gas bills depicting the boy. Pennsylvania state-owned liquor stores hang pictures of the boy in the stores. And this was the first time that the state stores would get involved in a crime in this way. The child's face was everywhere in Philadelphia. Many of the policemen that would work on the case decades later would recall seeing the boy's image posted in grocery store windows and the like during their childhood. And I mean, that would be something that a child would remember forever. On March 17th, the chief inspector announced that the FBI was going to be involved in the investigation. And I applaud Philly police for asking for help. I think cases where there is a murder like this or a missing person, and it's just too important to succeed to let egos get in the way. But any true crimer knows that all too often local or state police don't want the help of the FBI, regardless of the fact that it's sorely needed. There are cases where they literally refuse offers of help from the FBI, and the FBI can't get involved without a request for help from the police unless it naturally falls under the FBI's special investigative jurisdiction. I'm looking at you, Boulder, Colorado. It was just that every lead or theory that the police had never really panned out. That last cardboard box could not be tracked down, nor the man that bought that hat, and the blanket led nowhere. Police searched orphanages, hospitals, and homes for mentally handicapped children, but nothing turned up. No doctor or nurse could remember the boy or his supposed surgeries or eye treatments. The American Medical Association sent notices to members across the country, but nothing came of it. The county medical examiner had members of a women's local auxiliary search through birth records between 1953 and 1955 looking for the records of the boy's birth. And the police went far beyond just the Philadelphia area trying to get a match to the footprints taken of newborn babies and the boy. I have to admit, when I read that the years they searched were between 53 and 55 from a book, my math using those years would mean that they thought the unknown boy was two to four years old, but the child's estimated age is four to six. So that means they didn't look in the right birth years that correlated his age. But maybe that was an error in the book or I read some type of misunderstanding on my part. Everyone says that this was so thoroughly researched. I just was like, uh, but wouldn't be looking in 55. <laughs> you know, we found him in February 57, you know, but anyway. He's definitely older than two. Oh, I forgot to list one of the clues earlier. Along with the box and the hat, there was a potential eyewitness commonly referred to as the Good Samaritan. On a rainy Sunday afternoon, February 23rd, a driver spotted a car pulled along the side of the Susquehanna Road and a woman and what he thought was a young boy stood near the trunk of the car. The two kept their backs to the man and perhaps consciously or unconsciously, they blocked the car's license plate number from the man's view with their legs. Initially, he thought they were dumping something in the field and he asked them not to dump anything as he lived in the area. Then he thought, oh, maybe they need help with a tire or something. He offered his assistance and the woman shook her head no, never turning to face the man. Eventually, he drove off. But had he just interrupted the disposal of the little boy in the thicket? He described the boy he saw standing alongside the woman as wearing a hat and a raincoat and the car as dark colored and not flashy. Remember, that is the next day, February 24th, that the second man sees the boy's body and he reports it to the police the following day. This good Samaritan may have happened on the people as they were dumping the poor boy's body in that thicket. I don't like to criticize the police in this case because I think they tried very hard to solve this and give this little boy a name. Even when retired, some police continue to track down leads on their own time. This is so unusual for me as I normally love to criticize the police, but here they followed down so many leads that went absolutely nowhere in a time where technology available was so limited that I just feel the criticism isn't really warranted here. Many times I think that perhaps the police are withholding too much information from the public because as a member of the public, I want all this crime information that I can get. I know that maybe it's a fact that it's kept confidential is the item that if known to the public, it could break the case wide open. I get that it is a delicate balance. You want to hold stuff back so if there ever is a confession, you can compare it to the information that was never released to the public. 
But in this case, I just don't see the benefit of releasing the Good Samaritan information to the public. That would have been a perfect item to hold back. Revealing it did nothing to further the investigation. And if someone did confess, that little detail that someone had offered them assistance as they stood in the rain alongside the road would have been the confirmation that was needed to validate a confession. In some really good thinking, detectives attempted to connect the boy to various kidnappings that had occurred in previous years. Could he have been a boy that was taken from his family only to die a few years later? One of those cases was the kidnapping of Stephen Damon. Stephen was kidnapped on Halloween 1955 in Long Island. Stephen was almost three at the time that he went missing. He had accompanied his mother and his baby sister to the grocery store. The baby girl was in a carriage and the mother left the two children alone outside while she ran in for some quick shopping. Thankfully, you don't hear about this type of parenting that much anymore. In her defense, she was only in the store 10 minutes. But also not in her defense. I don't think her actions are defensible. In this, it was a different time crap. It's kind of bullshit. I mean, when she exited the store, both her children were gone. So obviously, it was not a good decision. It's like, oh, people didn't know that back then. But I think people did know you shouldn't leave your children alone unattended when they are a baby and three years old outside. Yeah, people did that all the time and kids didn't get kidnapped. But this lady did it and they did get kidnapped. So, oh, I'm not mom shaming. I'm just saying, let's not leave our small children out in public unattended. Because you know what happens? People grab them. Or they do something silly like walk out into traffic and get hit by a car. It's, the world's dangerous, people. And it was dangerous in 1955, 1956, 2022. It's always been dangerous. And us pretending that, oh, it was a different time. To a certain extent, yes. And to another extent, this woman lost her damn son. The police were called immediately, and the carriage was found about a block away with a little baby still inside unharmed. But there was no trace of Stephen, and he was never found. Police in Philadelphia wondered, could the unknown boy be Stephen? There were many similarities. The age was right. Stephen also had blonde hair. But the biggest connection was that Stephen also had an L-shaped scar under his chin, just like the unknown boy. But there was one big difference. Stephen had broken his arm and the unknown boy had never broken any bones. He could not be Stephen. The police had to look elsewhere, all the while getting crank calls from nutters that just wasted valuable time as they tracked down these leads that were given to them by wacky people. There were many leads to chase down, some of them from wacky people and some much more legitimate. There was a Marine who was one of 18. Yeah, you heard me, one of 18 children. He felt the boy might've been one of his younger siblings that he had lost contact with during his military service. But it was checked out and all the 18 kids total were tracked down and the little family was, I said little family, 18 kids. It wasn't little, but the family was reunited. People reported anyone who they thought seemed suspicious, especially if they had a son that no one had seen in a while. And this is good. The public needs to be reporting this. This is what we want. But also it's like, it's a lot of tracking stuff down and then they find the kid. All of these reports had to be investigated and they were at each time the child was found. A barber came forward saying he thought he had cut the boy's hair not long before the boy was found. He recalled that an older boy had been with him who was his brother. The little fellow had said that he had five brothers and one sister and indicated that he lived in the Strawberry Mansion neighborhood. That neighborhood was searched, but no one found a family with seven children with one missing. Some police got a little confused thinking the barber was lying just trying to get some attention because the boy's haircut was clearly not professional. This type of thinking ignores the fact that the haircut was most likely done to alter the boy's appearance in an attempt to thwart identification. The hair still stuck in clumps to the little boy's body. Clearly, that was not the haircut that the barber was referring to. And it's like, ah, police! All of that just goes to show 
just exactly how much footwork the police actually had to do. The public was very interested in finding out who this little boy was. And because of that, people gave the police any tip or lead that they could think of. Well, except for the people who were actually responsible for his death. By July, the boy's body had been on display for months, and the decision was made to bury the boy. But before he is buried, someone came up with the idea of dressing the boy and taking new pictures of him posed in a sitting position in the hopes that presenting the boy in this more natural state could jog a memory and create some new leads. Uh, the pictures are truly disturbing. The, the boy is on a large blanketed chair and he's dressed in clothing in full body pictures. And it's just, I mean, they're just trying to think of anything they can to jog somebody's mind. But I don't think these pictures really brought much more to the table than the previous ones did. After the pictures were taken and a death mask was made, it was time to arrange the burial. Detectives donated the money for the boy's funeral. The gravestone was donated, and the city's funeral directors association also contributed. Homicide detectives were pallbearers carrying the small white basket coffin to its resting place in Potter's Field, where he was laid to rest beside the bodies of prisoners, unclaimed bodies, and the remains of victims of crimes that amount to just unidentified body parts. That's what was in this potter's field, and that's what is in almost all potter's fields. All pauper's graves, we'll call them. This would be his final resting place. Years later, in 1998, his body would be exhumed for DNA extraction, and he would be reinterred in another cemetery. He would no longer be in a pauper's grave. The child's grave would be marked by the only headstone in that first cemetery he was in. The inscription read, Heavenly Father, bless this unknown boy, February 25th, 1957. Funeral prayers were said in the language of various religions, as there was no way to tell what faith this little boy had adhered to, if any. But one thing that was clear as he was laid to rest, his family had not been the true followers of any godly faith. The detectives never gave up on this case, even decades later. It could be argued that no one worked the case as hard and with such devotion as Remington Bristow, a longtime investigator in the medical examiner's office. He just seemed to never be able to let go of the case. Perhaps that was because he had suffered through the loss of one of his own children, a little girl that passed away of SIDS at only three months old. Bristow refused to believe the harsh realities that were likely life for this unknown little boy. As an investigator for the medical examiner, one would think that being confronted with the many neglected and abused bodies of deceased children in Philadelphia would have opened his eyes. But he felt such a connection to the little boy that wishful thinking may have replaced logical thought. He even put up a reward of $1,000 of his own money if any family would come forward and acknowledge the boy. I mean, acknowledging the boy would be acknowledging basically that you murdered him. So, But he's thinking this was all just an accident. I just... Cannot get on that same page with him. He used some unorthodox techniques in his quest to uncover the identity of the boy. He consulted a psychic. I'm not 100% anti-psychic. My mother greatly believed in them, and I hate to think of her as a silly woman. But I just think that area in which psychics operate is just too easy to manipulate. I just wish that my mother had lived to see the women who survived their abductions in Ohio and were later able to free themselves after years of abuse and imprisonment at the hands of Ariel Castro, the unwanted love child of the Little Mermaid and Fidel Castro. When their amazing story came to light, people recalled an episode of Montel Williams where his guest, Sylvia Brown, told the mother of one of the missing girls that her daughter was no longer alive. The mother would die before her daughter regained her freedom. And because of Sylvia Brown... She died with her hope that her daughter was still out there diminished. 
Sylvia was dead too by the time the little girls freed themselves, so she couldn't be forced to answer for the inaccuracy that she stated with such utter and complete confidence. Who the hell would want to give a mother such terrible news just to advance your own image and line your own pockets? Psychics use vague terms or try to get information from a subject without them realizing, I just feel like grieving and sad people are the easy targets of an unscrupulous psychic, and I hate people that prey on the weak. But then on the other side, you had that psychic that warned a young Natalie Wood to avoid dark water. Well, that bitch was right. I'm not saying all psychics are wrong or all psychics are charlatans. I'm just saying take it with a grain of salt. I'm just very cautious when I hear that a psychic is involved in an investigation. When some of my family members have gone to psychics and the psychic claims that someone that sounds like my mom or my brother who have both passed away are trying to contact them, I believe it in a way because I know that both my mom and my brother believed in that sort of thing. And if anyone would be trying to make contact, it would be them. I don't completely discount it. If it gives some grieving person some relief, then I'm all for it. But I'm not comfortable with the involvement of a psychic in a murder investigation. But when you run out of leads, I guess it's just a what the hell situation. Okay, less about me and more about the case. The psychic preferred to use metal to connect with her visions, but the only metal connected to the scene were two staples that were removed from the cardboard box. Not much to work with there. Also, a scrap of the blanket was provided to the psychic. The psychic saw a large house with a wooden railing along the porch, and behind the house there was a log cabin. This large house with the wooden railing and log cabin in the yard becomes Bristol's focus, and he finds such a place just a few miles from where the body was dumped. It was a group foster home where a Catholic family took in numerous children at once, anywhere from 6 to 24 kids at a time, but never babies. When the boy was discovered, the home was investigated for any missing children, and it was determined that the home had eight children at the time, and they were all accounted for. The Catholic family that hosted the children consisted of a husband and wife, along with the wife's 20-year daughter from her previous marriage. By most accounts, the daughter may have had a learning disability, but she had four pregnancies as, as an unwed mother in the 1950s. And I mentioned the marriage status because at that time, it would be a big deal. And I want to also emphasize that every time they refer to this family, it's referred to as a good Catholic family. Three of the babies were stillborn, and the lone survivor had perished years before in a horrible accident. The poor child was electrocuted on a mechanical ride outside of a store. But Bristol harbored a notion that perhaps the daughter had a child that was unaccounted for, a fifth child, that was hidden because the mother was not wed. But even at first sight, this doesn't make a lot of sense. The existence of the other four pregnancies were never hidden, so why would a fifth pregnancy and the resulting child be so shameful that no one could know? The foster children at the home at the time were questioned, and it seemed most could not remember the woman having a son of her own at the home. It just seemed like Bristol really latched onto this idea and he couldn't let it go. He followed up with the family for years. When the family got out of the fostering business, the big home was sold and an estate sale was held on the premises. Bristol saw in the basement at this sale a bassinet that he felt was similar to the one that was originally in the box that the boy was placed into. Bristol took a picture of the bassinet. But I have no idea why a man so obsessed with the case would have not purchased the bassinet. Why leave it there? Why just take a picture? It was for sale. Buy it. Bring it home. See if it's the same one. But anyway, while Bristol was at the estate sale, he went around to the backyard and he inspected the log cabin and saw that it was used as a playhouse for the children of the home. And flapping on the line, he saw blankets, some plaid, but they didn't seem to match the boy's blanket. And anyway, thousands of that blanket were made, so it wouldn't be much of a connection. But he did notice that the blankets had been cut in half, as if to fit a child's bed, just like the blanket the boy had been wrapped in. But honestly, the trimmed-down blanket and the bassinet that could have been a match were the only real pieces of evidence against this family. 
even if the bassinet was similar, couldn't have been bought at a different store, not necessarily the same Upper Darby store where the box in question had been shipped. I would think that probably all JC Pennies that had a baby department carried that bassinet. It's just we know that that bassinet specifically came from that Upper Darby JC Pennies because of the label. Just the mere fact that they have a bassinet, even if it's that same brand of bassinet that was sold, it doesn't mean they bought it in Upper Darby. Bristow really could not focus elsewhere, and he tried to convince the father and stepdaughter of the foster family to do a lie detector test, but they refused. And this was after they had moved and the mother had died. If the girl was special needs, I definitely wouldn't want her to do a lie detector test if I was her parent. But I'm not saying that there isn't something hinky about the family. After the mother died, the stepfather married the stepdaughter. I get it. They were not blood relations. I just think when you have to start citing it lack of being blood relatives as a defense to your actions, there probably isn't much of a defense to your actions. David Stout does explain in his book that perhaps there was a less gross reason for their union, such as benefits being better for a wife versus a stepdaughter, that perhaps there was no romantic entanglement. But I still just say, ooh. Bristow felt that he was receiving pushback to leave the family alone, like higher-ups were telling him to look elsewhere, and this may have been the case, but that doesn't make them guilty, it just means that maybe people thought he needed to look elsewhere for a valid reason. Because perhaps these people weren't the benefactors of government protection, they were just innocent. I do think it's funny that people keep referring to them as good Catholics. The daughter did have four children out of wedlock in the 1950s. I can't imagine anyone truly thinking that was evidence of being a good Catholic in that time period. I mean, right now, I think good Catholics would be like, uh-uh. I don't think 1950s would be like, yeah, that's the model Catholic family right there. Nope. No one was saying that about them. <laughs> While on vacation in Mexico, it suddenly hit Bristow that maybe the boy had been presented as a little girl, and that's why no one recognized him, because to everyone outside of the family that knew him, they knew him as a girl. He even had a street artist do a depiction of the child as a girl, which tells you that when this man went on vacation to Mexico, he must have taken a picture, or an artist rendering, or that picture, the, the, um, the death picture they were using to try to identify him. He took that with him on vacation. That's dedication, people. Okay, that is dedication. But anyway, he has this picture made up of a boy with long hair. He's thinking it was a, maybe a little girl, but presented as a little girl, partly because of the sloppy haircut and partly just because no one recognized him as a boy, so maybe no one knew him as a boy. But I find it interesting that the boy's eyebrows look like they may have been plucked or shaped like a woman would do to herself. The eyebrows are thin and, and just shaped. It's just unusual for a little boy. It's really unusual for any little child to have eyebrows that are plucked that aren't, you know, in the pageant circuit. Bristow would die before DNA technology would definitively prove that the daughter from the foster care family was definitely not the mother of the unknown boy. I feel bad that he devoted so much time to pursuing a lead that didn't pan out. He was just so devoted to that little boy that there was a real sweetness there, but it created a blinder situation. He once explained that his baby girl had passed away and was buried in California, so he visited the unknown boy instead. I just think he felt so bad that he couldn't visit his little girl while he was aware that no parents ever wanted to visit this little boy. It's a cruel irony that a little girl he loved so much was taken away from him due to no fault of his own. He couldn't even visit her grave site regularly. While this unwanted boy was still probably in close proximity to parents who didn't care or dare to go visit his grave site. But Bristow's theory about the foster family did have some supporters until it was shot down by DNA evidence. The other leading theory that has yet to be disproven or 
for that fact proven, is um, comes from a patient of a psychiatrist. She began opening up to her doctor in the late 1980s or early 1990s, I couldn't find an exact date, about the horrors of her childhood. But it takes 13 years of treatment before she would let the doctor contact the authorities with the information that she had been telling him for years. She claimed that the boy in the box was a child that her parents had bought as a baby to use in sexually deviant activity. And after keeping the child in the basement for two years, her mother killed the boy in a rage while giving the child a bath. The doctor had not taken any notes during or after these sessions, so there's absolutely no sort of proof of when she started telling her psychiatrist this story or if this story ever changed. I just also want to keep in line where this woman comes from and the family, her parents that she's describing. This is a mainline Philadelphia family. Old money, big money. The richest people in Philadelphia. Mayflower people. The only person that I know from this time period that came from a mainline family was Grace Kelly. Super rich, super good looking. Her father was a former Olympian. It's kind of interesting how the original investigators, who were pretty much appalled by the murder, are supplanted through retirement over time with officers much more familiar with such brutality. And that's just sad when you think about it. So these new investigators, they don't have the devotion to this case, but also I think that in general, fresh eyes are a good thing. It's just, you know, it's the older guys that really wanted to solve this. They're coming to retirement point. So at a certain point, this case gets passed on to a guy that could be considered, a, you know, a quote-unquote problem detective. Because at the time he was appointed to this case, he was under investigation due to claims of police brutality. These allegations were proven to be false, but at the time he was put on the Boy in the Box case, the allegations were still pending. But that shows you priority level that this case is being given now. You're kind of giving it to a detective that's like, I don't know, not your top of the line, I'd say. At this point in his career. Okay, back to the super rich lady who grew up on the main line. Her parents were a school teacher father and a librarian mother. Both are super stable, well-paying jobs. And if anyone disagrees with me that those jobs are well-paid, then go live on the wages of a cashier, okay? School teacher, librarian, those are good jobs. Living on the main line at least means that your family used to have money, you know, generational wealth. The girl's parents were well-respected. Their daughter noted that the two had many cheery notes in your books over the years. They were well-liked. But could these claims of child abuse and baby purchasing be the ramblings of an unstable psychiatric patient? Or a true account of a horrific child abuse? It's hard to tell. The psychiatrist took no notes of the conversations with his patient. So while he claimed that she'd been telling the exact same story for 13 years, other than this man's word, there is no proof to back up that claim. I truly believe that it is weird that he took no notes, that there is no record. Does he not really have files on various patients? This patient paid out of pocket for her sessions? So there could be, there would be no need to create documents for insurance purposes. And she seemed very eager to make sure that her employer, a well-known drug company where she held a high-level post, never find out that she was seeking psychiatric services. But I just kind of think once she starts talking about being associated with probably the most infamous John Doe, you know, boy in the box, unknown dead child case in Pennsylvania's history, that this man didn't put pencil to paper and uh, want to jot some of this crap down that she's saying. I mean, I could get it if she's just some random lonely lady complaining about her life to her therapist or psychiatrist. But this woman saying, I know who killed maybe the most infamous, at this time, unsolved child death in Pennsylvania's history. He's just like, yeah, um, I'm good. I don't need to jot this down or anything. I got it all up here. Steel trap. Uh, whatever, dude. The following is taken from the account from the unnamed lady that she gave to the police in her psychiatrist's office in June of 2002. In attendance were the two retired investigators who continued to work on the case after retirement and the active duty investigator. 
Okay, so this woman says that she was there when her mother paid for and picked up the baby boy and that she herself held the baby on the car ride home. She knew that the baby was being paid for because before the woman in the doorway handed the baby over to her mother, she heard her man yell from inside the house, Did you get some money? I'm assuming that's how he sounded. I mean, I think that's the only way you can yell that. But anyway, at this point, her mother took an envelope out of her purse and handed it over to the woman in the doorway. The woman handed the baby over and shut the front door, almost slamming it. As she held the baby during the car ride, the girl noted that his diaper smelled of pee, as diapers often do. She did not give an age for the child, but she refers to him as a baby, so I would think under a year old at this point. The young girl asked her mother why they were taking the baby home. Her mother replied that the baby needed a home. She asked if the baby could be her brother. The mother said yes, but that the baby couldn't be kept upstairs. The baby would be kept in a room in a basement. There was once a coal bin, you know, where you keep brothers. The mother took some blankets to the basement and what the girl referred to as a heavy dog type dishes. The family never had a pet while she was growing up, she said, so I don't understand why they would have these heavy type of dishes. Okay, maybe they bought these dishes for this special purpose, or maybe she is just making shit up. If this is a baby, what the hell is it going to do with a dog bowl? It just sounds like she's making this up to make it sound even more depressing. But do you need to make it sound more depressing? This little guy is going to live in a coal bin, according to her. I mean, I think she's trying to give credence to her story by giving these tiny depressing details. But to me, it just makes the story sound more ridiculous. A little tiny baby, a small baby can't eat out of a dog bowl. It just sounds weird. It's not enough that the baby lived alone in a coal bin in a basement, but he had to eat from dog bowls too. Just, it's a little much. The baby was called Jonathan by his new family. And even the name Jonathan doesn't sound like a name from the 1950s to me. I checked the social security list ranking the popularity of baby names in the 1950s. Less than 26,000 babies were named Jonathan in that decade. It was ranked 128th out of all baby names for boys. Now I get that this kid wouldn't be on that list, but to me it just seems fake. Like if they had said, oh, his name was Tom, Charles... But Jonathan? I don't know. I guess Jonathan Winters. But it just doesn't seem like a 1950s name to me. The girl continues on, explaining that an old refrigerator box was the baby's makeshift mattress. Her mother took food down to the baby, and sometimes the girl would accompany her mother on these trips to the basement. She recalled that he would never speak in response to her talking to him, and that during his stay with this family, he never learned to speak. And he lived with the family for two and a half years, according to her. The girl seemed to think that, in her words, he was retarded. Yeah, maybe. But also, if he was a little baby and only lived there for two years, he's not going to become an impressive linguist living alone in a basement. How old is he at this point? You said he was a baby, so we'll say one. So he's three and a half. And I don't know, this woman describes herself always as incredibly smart. But, I mean, you wouldn't. who would be incredibly smart when you start living in a basement when you're one year old? So I don't know if this baby actually had a learning disability or if he just never had the opportunity to learn. The girl said that even when they went down to feed him, that he didn't speak very much. So maybe a learning disability. Maybe not. She said that after the boy had been with them for a while, she would sneak down to the basement to see him. She complained of the smell as the boy used the little drain near the coal bin as a toilet. Once a week, he was brought upstairs for a bath. He would splash and make noise, but never spoke a word. Looking back, she thinks that he was hungry all the time. She says that she was often underfed, and that most of the time she was a little bit hungry. Two and a half years passed as the boy lived alone in that basement. The girl began to take on the role of delivering his food. She would sit on the cardboard beside him. He was always covered in coal dust. He would rock himself back and forth making baby sounds. She even got him to smile. His hair was long, as it was never cut. The night that Jonathan died, the mother had made 
baked beans, which Jonathan ate. The daughter said that they were not very good. Jonathan was to get a bath that night. There was no school the next day, so it would be a Friday or Saturday evening. I don't think there was any holidays that would have given them a day off school in February, because I don't think President's Day came into play until later. The mother dragged Jonathan upstairs for his bath. The boy's feet thumped along the way. The girl could tell that her mother was angry. Jonathan looked scared. He sat on the floor waiting for the tub to fill. The girl noted that he was too old for the diaper that he was wearing. The mother told the girl to cut his fingernails. Tossing the diaper in the waste bin, the mother placed the boy into the tub. He screamed. The water was too hot. Then, according to the girl, he played in the water, splashing around, getting the mother wet. When he got out of the bath, the girl said that he was complaining, whimpering, stomping his feet, and tears came and his nose began to run. The mother put him back in the tub. This time, he didn't scream. I mean, maybe the water had cooled, she said, but what, didn't she just say he screamed the water was too hot, but he was in there splashing and playing? Like, was the water too hot? And to me, it's like, there's so much inconsistency with this woman's story. I mean, he was playing around the tub, but he was crying because it was too hot. He got out, he went back in, and how long was he out whimpering that the water would have gone to a reasonable temperature where, you know, moments before it was water that was hot enough to make him cry? Anyway, so he goes back in the tub. The boy throws up in the tub. A brown mess. The baked beans were in the tub water. Remember that brown stuff in that little boy's throat? Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to... I might be starting to believe what she's selling here. Might be buying what she's selling. That definitely matches the evidence. Okay, back to the woman's account of the night. The boy died. The little boy was pulled from the tub and smacked hard. He began to cry, and when he didn't stop crying, the mother slapped him again. These slaps were on his face. The mother then lost it completely. The final slap was so hard he fell hitting his head on the floor with a thud. The mother kept hitting him with both hands while he lay on the floor. The slaps turned into punches. The boy tried to curl up to protect himself. He wasn't making any sound. And the mother ordered the girl to get out. The girl ran to her room, but she heard splashing and a loud thud. She assumed that the boy had been placed back into the tub. The mother yelled at the boy to wake up. Silence followed. The girl could hear the other bathroom door open. It was her father. The parents talked nervously. The girl shut her door and went to bed. She heard the tub draining and she heard scissors. When she peeked at Jonathan in the bathroom the next morning, his hair was shorter. His eyes were open, but she could tell that he was dead. She said that there was a sadness in his face. When the mother saw her looking in on Jonathan, she sent her to bed as it was too early for her to be up. So she went back to bed and went to sleep. She doesn't remember where her father was that morning or eating breakfast or getting dressed, which she chalks up to shock. She does recall her mother lifting Jonathan out of the tub and wrapping him in a blanket. The mother said they were going to put him somewhere safe. She carried him to the basement. They exited the basement through a side door that opened onto the driveway and was shielded from view of the neighbors by some shrubs. Her mother sent the girl back inside for her warm raincoat and cap. Yeah, this implies that this girl had two raincoats, but she told her to go get her warm raincoat. Yeah, they care enough that she has two raincoats, but she doesn't get enough food. See, weird. This is why I don't believe you. Who has two raincoats? But it's still, mm, we underfeed you. They drive to a circle. Here, there was a big church. They turned down a road. It was almost like a country road, according to the girl. Alongside the road was a patch of woods. The mother stopped the car, and they just sat for a few minutes. Then they got out. Before she opened the trunk, the mother searched the road for any cars. Suddenly, a car stopped along the road, and after he drove away, the trunk was opened. The Good Samaritan. Things from her account are appearing to line up with the evidence related to the boy, so maybe I was being a little too critical, guys. Okay, so the guy drives away, and according to the girl, after he leaves, the mother opens the trunk, again checking the road for cars. They take Jonathan out of the trunk. According to her next statement, he was already wrapped in a little blanket. 
There it is again. The blanket he was wrapped in was small. The investigators might finally have some answers. The mother and daughter walked carrying the boy to a patch of woods, and they saw a box that had been discarded. Oh, this is, oh, oh that box, though. So, yeah, mm-hmm. It was just a discarded box, according to this girl. The mother told the girl to tilt the box, and the mother slid Jonathan into the box. They returned to the car while walking in the rain and left the way that they had come. They stopped at a diner on the way home to grab a bite to eat. The girl thinks that she had a donut. And this, I think I had a donut, rings false to me. Really, it was a long time ago, and it is a minor detail. It affects nothing related to the investigation. But when I was young, but school age, my mother took me and my brother to the funeral of a baby... I cannot remember all the details, but afterwards, my mom got us pizza to try to cheer us up because I was so clearly sad. I remember everything about that pizza. It was square, like cafeteria pizza that I loved. The cheese was extra thick and shiny, almost waxy-like. We didn't have much money. We never got pizza out, so this was a real treat. Seriously, I can only remember getting a full-size pizza with my family three times in my childhood. Once it was delivered, twice we picked it up. But that day after the viewing, I couldn't eat a bite. And I couldn't eat square pizza for probably the next 15 years, even at school. It brought me back to that sad day and that sad little baby. My only point is, I personally would have remembered what I ate after I abandoned my dead brother in a thicket. That meal would be seared into my memory. The mother had to pull over the car once they got back on the road so the girl could vomit. But, you know, she doesn't remember what she ate. By the time she was recounting these events, the police, decades had passed, and both of her parents were deceased. When she was asked what type of car they were driving on the day that they were disposed of Johnson's body, she didn't remember the specific car, but said that they always had super ordinary cars that were dark colored. This is the end of the information that she conveyed in that meeting with law enforcement. Months after that interview, she contacted the lead investigator on the case and informed her that she now believed that her uncle may have been the biological father of Jonathan. She has no evidence at all to back this up, but she recalled that her uncle was very affectionate and attentive to the boy when he visited the family. Her uncle was nice to Jonathan, and from this, she extrapolates that he must be the boy's father. It concerns me that she would take something so small as kindness and stretch into something much larger than it likely was. She seems to overanalyze events. The uncle was on her father's side of the family. Mitochondrial DNA was the only DNA that they obtained when they exhumed the boy's body, and testing cannot be done against the male line of the father with mitochondrial DNA. As generally, people do not only, as generally people only inherit mitochondrial DNA from their mother. I sort of think that maybe the uncle was just nice to this tiny little boy who was clearly undernourished and mistreated. I don't think that makes him the boy's father, just maybe a nicer person than the parents were. If the uncle was the boy's father, he should have given more of a shit when he saw what condition the boy was in and stopped the abuse and neglect. Hell, he should have done that regardless of whether or not he was the boy's father. It's just a little weird aside that came from this lady's story of her childhood with his adopted baby brother. Okay, let's dive into an analysis of her account compared to the known facts that the investigators have about the boy. First, she claims she thought the boy was often hungry, as she was during her childhood. But the investigators that met with her repeatedly commented on her size. They knew that she was taller than most men, with incredibly broad shoulders. She was built like an athlete, is what they said. No, I realize that just because you are a bigger person doesn't mean that you were never hungry as a kid, or that at times you could have gone without sufficient food. But a person who spent their entire childhood chronically undernourished would not grow into an incredibly tall, well-built, broad-shouldered, athletic adult. When the boy's bones were analyzed during the autopsy, they showed bands that indicated stunted growth due to malnourishment. The same could not be said for this woman. Everyone knew from the papers that the boy was undernourished, so here it looks like an assertion by her to fit the case. 
Not only was the boy underfed, there was medical evidence to support this. The unknown boy was determined to have an age weight of two years and two months and a height age of three years and eight months. That doesn't go to show his actual age, just the degree to which he was malnourished and its effect on his development, considering that the authorities thought he was at least four years old. She claims that she too was often hungry as a child, but physically to the naked eye, there is no evidence of her being consistently malnourished as a kid. Second, this was really the most compelling evidence of a connection between Jonathan and the unknown boy, the brown residue in the deceased child's esophagus. How could she have made this up? Is it just a lucky guess? Well, who knows? But I do know that the information was on a website created by George Knowles in 1999 that was dedicated to the boy in the box. And he had to have gotten that information from somewhere. The psychiatrist says that his patient has never changed her story and she did start seeing the psychiatrist before the website was created. But if George Knowles was able to find that information about the brown substance in the boy's throat, that means it was out there. That was not something, that was something that was publicly available before 1999. If George Knowles could find this information, then so could the psychiatric patient. It seems that in their desire to solve this case and identify this boy, tons of information was giving out. So it's hard to verify people's later confessions or statements because there's no way to determine what they truly know because they were there and what they read in the paper. Okay, the next one is, it's not clear what Jonathan's age was when he went to live with the family, but she constantly refers to him as a baby in reference to the car ride home. Was he a newborn or closer to one? I don't have any information on his exact age, but say we guess in the middle, six months. Okay, six months old, he goes to live with the family. He's with the family for two and a half years. So, okay, three years old when he dies. The age of the unknown child would not be conclusively established, partly due to undernourishment, but it was thought that he was between four and six. According to her account, Jonathan would be closer to three. So he wouldn't be undersized at all. In fact, the unknown boy would be rather large for a three-year-old. I mean, we can push this up a little bit higher, you know, maybe the boy was closer to one as opposed to six months, but even then, he's still barely four, you know? Bottom line is, Jonathan is likely two and a half to three years old, maybe four, and the unknown boy is four to six years of age. The ages just don't seem to match. The next, uh, her claim that Jonathan used the drain in the floor near the coal bin as a toilet. She claims he could smell the stench from the bottom of the stairs. But of course, it smelled. The poor boy used the drain as a body. Yet when she recalls the events of the night of Jonathan's death, she remembers his diaper. Seeing him sitting on the bathroom floor in his diaper and thinking, he's too big for a diaper. And that her mother threw the diaper in the trash, but the girl was too embarrassed to look at it. Which was it? Did Jonathan wear a diaper or did he use a drain as a toilet? I would not think it was both because how could a child of under three be toilet trained, even if it was just to use a floor drain? while he was on three and under, and still being raised in a basement by people that he saw him maybe once a day. I mean, I struggled to potty train children that I see all the time. But she's saying, oh, he was trained to use a drain. He could be trained to use a drain as a toilet, but he never learned to speak. But you also have him on the day he died wearing a diaper. You can't, it, it can't be all of these things. You know, like some of these things, not everything that she says can be true, is what it appears to me. Okay, her next claim that she could hear scissors the night that Jonathan died, and the next day she saw him lying dead in the bathroom with noticeably shorter hair. The language that she used was she heard the sound of scissors. While she laid in bed that night with her door shut, she could hear scissors being used in another room. And that just sounds off. This would be an old house with solid construction. Even in the flimsy houses of today, I don't think one can hear scissors being used in another room, especially not with the doors closed. But the fact that he had a hasty haircut near the time of his death was well known. Um, she claims that 
when she saw Jonathan that morning in the bathroom, there was sadness in his face. This Okay, it's a rather vague description of sadness, but I recall reading that one officer noted at the crime scene that the boy's mouth was open as if he had been crying out. Her description of sadness doesn't match this small detail of the mouth. I think that would be a very memorable for her, you know, as it was for the officer, if she had actually seen this deceased child. Um, another thing is she recalled that Jonathan was wrapped in a small blanket and he was, but he was wrapped in two small blankets. It's a blanket that had been cut into two pieces. And the woman's account was a single small blanket with no mention of a chunk being cut out of one of the pieces. And the woman alleges that her parents abused her sexually and that was the reason the family bought baby Jonathan in the first place was so the mother could sexually abuse the child. As the mother, according to her, believed that children were pure and that was something that she wanted in her sexual partners. Ugh. The woman very well could have been sexually abused. I'm not disputing that at all, but the medical examiner found no evidence that the unknown boy had been raped or sexually assaulted. I don't know. Maybe the mother is waiting till he got older for the sexual abuse to start. Maybe this lady was in it for the long haul. It's just mm, hard to tell. It is worth noting that when investigators look into the parents, the parents were highly regarded members of their community. I know that means nothing. Anyone can act like an upstanding person in public, but when they get behind closed doors... And that will be the one and only time I quote Conway Twitty today. Okay, the final discrepancy. The Good Samaritan said that when he stopped alongside the woman and the boy to offer assistance, and I don't, it doesn't matter to me that the Good Samaritan saw a woman and a boy because from the back wearing a raincoat and this woman, she keeps, the, everyone keeps referencing how large she is, that she may have looked like a boy you know, in a, in a raincoat and a hat. So I don't think that's an issue. But the Good Samaritan said when he stopped to offer assistance, the trunk of the car was open. The girl noted that the trunk was closed when the passerby stopped, specifically saying that after he left, the mother looked for any cars coming before she opened the trunk. That's not a minor detail. That is not a minor detail. If I was standing beside the trunk of a car that contained a dead body and a passerby came up to me, I would forever, forever remember whether that trunk was open or closed. Also, Interesting to me was that the psychiatrist referred to this account that the woman gave as an unlocked memory. I don't know if we're going to go down that whole road yet, but I just want to say I'm very uncomfortable with unlocked memories being used in courts. And this isn't a, for trial yet, but ugh, it's just a psychological phenomenon, I think, that happened in the 80s and maybe 90s where people had these repressed and then you could unlock these memories. I just find it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very dangerous area to be in. Okay, so the investigators eventually convinced the new owner of the home the girl grew up in to allow them into the basement to look around. And they find the coal bin with a drain on the floor near it. And there is a basement door that opens up onto the driveway. So her story matches up, right? This is what all the older time investigators were thinking. Oh gosh, it matches up. No, it just shows that she's familiar with the house. Not that the events that she claimed happened actually occurred there. They could have established that, you know, she resided in that home by looking you know, record search or property deeds or even school records. Sure, the place has a coal bin with a drain near it and a basement door that exists to a driveway. But does it mean that a little boy named Jonathan once lived in that basement? It just means she remembers the layout of her childhood home. If I tell you that I grew up with a home that has sliding glass door in the basement and then I saw my parents drag Jimmy Hoffa's body out of that sliding glass door to a waiting car, and you go to the home and you've confirmed the existence of a sliding glass door in a basement, that shows you that the door exists. But it goes nowhere to show you that Jimmy Hoffa was ever there. And I'm just going to call bullshit on my own Jimmy Hoffa idea because I know for a fact that he went missing before I was born. But you see my point. They confirmed the existence of a house with a basement with a coal bin, basement door. Yeah, good. But nothing there 
ties that to an actual child being held in the basement. I feel that some investigators are just too eager to solve this and they are seeing connections because they want to see connections. The active duty investigator that worked with the retired cops seemed to question her story much more than the retired officers. But I think the other guys were just so invested because they were involved with the case from the beginning that may have clouded their objectivity. The desire and relentless work to identify this boy should be applauded. The sadness is that more people cared about this little boy after he died than they did during his lifetime. Overall, I don't think that the claims of a baby, Jonathan being held as a possible sex slave in a basement are credible. So with the new advancements in DNA testing and the introduction of familial searching, what about using a genealogical DNA search to identify the boy? Well, there is good news here. The boy's body was exhumed again in 2019 and further DNA was obtained. And according to the Philadelphia CBS, what was obtained was the biggest break in the case up to that point in time. And that the investigators are closer than ever to finding the boy's identity. This most recent DNA was apparently sent off to a lab in Europe. Okay, kind of vague, right? And that was two years ago. So hopefully we get some results soon. And if the unknown boy could be identified through genealogy route, that would be terrific. This little boy deserves a name. Everyone does. My greatest fear is that the little fellow was actually adopted as a baby, even though I don't believe the allegations made by the woman about her mother buying the boy to use as a sex slave and naming him Jonathan. He still could have been adopted. And any DNA connections made through genealogy wouldn't lead to his actual name or killers, just his birth family. Maybe this is why over a year after the boy's DNA was sent to Europe for analysis, there has been no press updates. Every year on the anniversary of the date of when the boy's body was found by the police, a ceremony of remembrance is held at his grave site and led by the Vidoc Society, which is basically a group of retired investigators and forensic experts that examine and attempt to solve cold cases. And it's based on the Philadelphia area. They've actually helped solve one cold case and helped clear an innocent man of murder allegations. So they've done some good work. Membership is capped at 82 members, but I question the actual work product of society with two cases of results in 32 years isn't great. I mean, they helped those people. A crime was solved, innocent man found to be innocent. So if they had done one case in 32 years, they've still done more than most people. All I'm just saying, I think sometimes, I think they spend a lot of time sitting around in wood-paneled rooms and smoking cigars. And every, I guess, 16 years, they solve something. But to their credit, they have taken an interest in this case of the boy in the box and have kept it in the attention of the media to a degree. The Vidoc Society believes that they are closer than ever to finding out who this little boy is. And I hope they are right. Okay, so it's a cold case. And an old case. Sure, the boy's killers are most likely dead. The boy was murdered 65 years ago. So the killer, if still alive, would likely be over 80 years old. But maybe the killer is still alive. But they aren't getting any younger, so time's running out. A detective sergeant, Bob Kohlmeyer, has managed to keep the investigation alive. And he seems hopeful about finding out who this little boy is. And I don't have much in the way of theories on this case, other than I think this boy was not local to Philadelphia. I think he maybe came from a severely impoverished family, and his death was not an accident, but caused by an abuse. David Stout espoused theories about the boy belonging to a traveling family, such as carnival workers or a migrant worker family. And I kind of agree with that, I think. I really want to agree with that theory because it holds a lot of sense to me as why he, no one in Philadelphia ever came forward to identify the boy. But February isn't a time for traveling carnivals in Pennsylvania. And there is no need for itinerant farm workers in eastern Pennsylvania in the winter. I can't think of any reason for that to be. But it makes sense to me that the boy was just passing through Philadelphia when the boy was killed and disposed of. Homicide Captain Jason Smith said when talking about finding the boy's identity, we owe it to the child. We owe it to their family members. I agree, 
and I disagree. While the boy most certainly deserves his name back, I just feel we don't owe too much to his family. The family of a malnourished little boy who was beaten to death and discarded naked alongside a road. It appears that he was never reported missing and no family member ever stepped forward to claim him, despite his picture being literally everywhere. He was abandoned. So let's abandon any idea that anybody other than this little fellow is owed something. He was owed a better life. Dignity and death, love and life. Debts owed to him by his family. The case is one of America's most infamous cold cases, and hopefully we will learn this boy's name, and in finding his name, we will likely find his killer, because he was most likely was killed by a close family member, and the rest of the family did what was needed to protect the killer. But no one ever did much of anything to protect the boy in the box. Okay. Now, I want to talk about, for a minute, the nature of true crime and people that are interested in it, because I get so much backlash from people that think that true crime and this as a pursuit is something that's just, you know, lowbrow. So I know many people think of true crime books, TV shows, and podcasts as lowbrow form of entertainment, but I think this is a myopically small view of a valid topic of interest. Sure, I'm not discounting it. There are those people that are drawn to true crime because of a macabre interest in the suffering of others, but I propose that those individuals are in the minority. I view true crime as less entertainment and more of a study of a horrible event that leads to other important conversations. Most importantly, it is actual crimes and in their tour through the legal process that results in both changes to our existing laws and new interpretations of our constitutional rights as American citizens. I think that those who declare that an interest in true crime is a lowbrow pursuit of the uneducated are desperate to prove their own intelligence. To be part of the smart elitist crowd, so desperate that they ignore the most basic of human interests. People have always been interested in true crime. It's human nature. To deny that as a fact is silly. To say it's a pursuit of only the simple is an oversimplification of a legitimate human interest. To say that only morbid people are interested in the details related to a child's abduction or murder, or for that fact the murder of an adult, is predicated on the assumption that intelligent and sophisticated people have no natural interest in this topic. But shouldn't all people be interested in the murdering of a fellow human being? Or did those people honestly suppose that they are so morally and intellectually superior that they are above such things? Because they are clearly not. The tragic story of the boy in the box raises many questions that the supposedly intelligently superior like to debate all the time, such as the existence of God and his failure to intervene in human life, even to advert tragedy or suffering. Personally, I don't believe in an interventionist God who takes an active role in the events on earth. To say that God truly has a hand in the day-to-day -day of this world and an individual's lives assumes that God is picking and choosing who has good things happen to them and who has bad things happen to them. I choose to believe in God, and I refuse to believe in a God that would pick out who to reward and who to punish. I cannot believe in a God that would pick a child to endure a life of suffering and misery with no happiness that ends with a child's brutal beating and their death. But I do believe that this little boy is in a better place right now. Why do I think that? Well, because it makes me happy to think that his sad existence didn't end with him simply moldering in a grave. That idea hurts me. I want him to have some happiness. That doesn't make me a fool. It makes me hopeful. The sadness of this little fellow's existence raises another question that the intellectually defensive like to debate. Abortion. Was this child's life worth living? It's a hard question to ask, but it's clearly a question that has been raised by this murder. Based on his abandonment, malnourishment, and his brutal beating, one can clearly see that this little guy had a hard life, devoid of joy. Would it have been better had he not been born? This is a legitimate question, born out of a criminal act. 
but it just shows how murder can spark debate or even just internal thought in your own mind about your personally held views. To me, I celebrate the views of others and I let my personal views constantly evolve. To hold an opinion and stick with it blindly to me is ridiculous. Let yourself grow and change. Re-examine yourself. Maybe what you always thought isn't necessarily what you think now. And this is part of the value of true crime. It makes one think primarily about how to catch a criminal, how the law should be impacted by individual crime, and whether our constitutional rights are being protected. But bigger, broader issues related to moral questions are raised. Maybe the intellectual elitists can't think independently in this way. And because those interested in true crime can think for themselves and aren't needed to be told expressly how to think, we can strike off into diverse topics that are fueled by our interest in true crime. Maybe it's true. Or maybe I'm just a little bit defensive. This has been the first episode of The Second Location. And I'd like to say, I truly hope that we will learn this little boy's identity. I don't care that it's been 65 years ago. He used to have a name. And I want him to have a name again. And I know you do too.